This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. And we're going to talk about both of these important truths in our passage of study today, because this is episode 193, entitled, Interpreting the Number One, Christologically, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. And we have some exciting news about an upcoming debate in which I will be involved And I'll talk about the details of this debate at the end of the episode, so please stay tuned until the conclusion of this week's episode. Today, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, and the rather interesting ambiguity surrounding how to translate the Greek number 1, which in Greek is the word enos at least here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For those who know biblical Greek pretty well, they are aware that enos is the form of the cardinal number 1, that is genitive, and the genitive form of the cardinal number 1 is actually shared between the masculine declension as well as the neuter declension, meaning that we're not exactly sure what the author of Hebrews intended with this particular reference. It can't mean both the masculine number one and the neuter number one. It can only refer to one of those options. And English readers of the Bible are likely to be completely unaware that this interpretive ambiguity even exists when reading Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Your English translation has already made a decision for you as to which of the interpretive options it wants you to read. So what are the interpretive differences between understanding the cardinal number one in Hebrews 2.11 as a grammatical masculine or a grammatical neuter? What are the implications when it comes to understanding God and his identity? What is at stake with Jesus and his humanity? And how do the quotations from the Greek version of the Old Testament clarify what the author meant with this ambiguous reference to the number one? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is initial impressions of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 through 13. So I'm going to read our primary passage and the following two verses because in the following two verses, the author of Hebrews cites some passages from the Old Testament, from the Greek version of the Old Testament, in order to clarify what he means with his statement in Hebrews 2.11. So let's start in verse 11. The passage says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, 
I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. So we have in this particular passage a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified being believers, Christians, human beings who are children of God. And the passage says that both he, Jesus who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified are all from one. All from one person? Or are they all from one thing? We're not exactly sure. Some more impressions that I can see involve the fact that there are two passages from the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, that are cited in verses 12 to 13 in order to prove the point made in our primary passage, chapter 2, verse 11. The passages that are cited are Psalm 22, verse 22, and Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 through 18. The Isaiah passage in verses 17 through 18 of chapter 8 are actually broken up into two separate citations. So let's talk about these passages because I think it's good for us to understand the original reference of these citations and what the author of Hebrews is trying to do by drawing upon these references and using them for Jesus. So the first passage that's cited comes from Psalm 22, verse 22. You might be aware of Psalm 22 as the passage that Jesus cited on the cross, according to Matthew and Mark's gospel, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 was understood messianically by early Christians. Psalm 22, which if you're looking up in the Septuagint, would actually be Psalm 21 in the ordering that the Septuagint counts the Psalms. But in your English Bible, it'll be Psalm 22. This passage says in the Septuagint that I, who is the psalmist, probably David, will recount your name, that is God's name, to my brethren, that is to David's family members, in the midst of the congregation, I, the psalmist, likely David, will sing your, God's, praise. So I will recount your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So it's David talking to God, saying he's going to recount God's name, and he's going to praise God with song. So by applying Psalm 22 from David, the original speaker, to Jesus, the quotation actually accomplishes some very interesting points. So just as David was distinguished from God, originally in Psalm 22, now Jesus is distinguished from God. Because the author of Hebrews puts Jesus in the place of David by citing this passage in reference to Jesus. Another interesting accomplishment is that David had brethren. He had his own family members in Psalm 22. And since it's now quoted for Jesus, the author of Hebrews wants you to think that Jesus now has 
brethren. He has family members. He has brothers and sisters. And another interesting point is that since David was praising God in the psalm, now the quotation is used of Jesus, and now Jesus is depicted of praising God in song. So Psalm 22, verse 22, has some very interesting implications when it comes to Christology. The next passage that is cited is Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 through 18. Now it's broken up into two different citations, basically Isaiah 8, 17, and another one, Isaiah 8, 18. So let's look at the first one. In Isaiah 8, verse 17, the original reference says that I, the prophet Isaiah, will put my trust in him, namely in God. I, Isaiah, will put my trust in God. Now the following verse, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, says, Behold, I, the prophet Isaiah, and the children, that's Isaiah's actual family, whom God has given me, whom God has given to Isaiah. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So, by applying Isaiah chapter 8 and these two verses from Isaiah, the original speaker, to Jesus, here in Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews accomplishes some very important points. First, we could see that the historical Isaiah pretty clearly distinguished himself from God, and now Jesus is clearly distinguished from God. They are not confused, nor have they collapsed into a single being. Just like Isaiah, Jesus is now portrayed as trusting God. Jesus has a trusting relationship with God. Moreover, just as Isaiah had human children, whom he attributed to God's gracious act of giving, now Jesus is described as possessing family members whom God gave to him. So those are some interesting implications just by looking at the passage and its quotations from the Old Testament. And now that we have that context firmly established, we can look at the various ways in which the word one in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 could reasonably be interpreted. And commentaries actually are divided on this particular issue. So let's move on to our second point. Point number two is interpreting the number one as a grammatical masculine. So by understanding the number one as a grammatical masculine, this reading, which I think we should call the theological interpretation, because it's going to talk about God, Theos. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 would presumably say that, quote, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one, one referring to a single masculine person, namely the Father. They are all from one Father, for which reason he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. So this would have Jesus, the one who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, namely Christians, all deriving from one person, namely the Father. 
meaning God the Father, would be the sole creator of Jesus and of Christians. Now the context of this is the previous verse, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, which says that it was fitting for God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So God is the creator of all things. God is described with singular pronouns, the word whom. And God brings many children to glory, many sons to glory. And of course, the many sons would include the children of God. That's the faithful people of God, what the author of Hebrews would know as Christians. And it would also include the Son of God, namely Jesus. Because both Jesus and the people of God are described with sonship language in Hebrews. So if they are all described as sons, then their creator would naturally be the father of those sons. So what sort of argument is in favor of understanding the cardinal number here in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 theologically, namely as a grammatical masculine referring to one person? one masculine person, namely the Father. Well, God has already described himself as a single person earlier in Hebrews chapter 1. Specifically in verse 5, God described himself with the singular pronouns I, my, me, and the quotations in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 called God the Father citing Psalm 2, 7, 2 Samuel 7, 14, where it says, This day I have become your father, and I will be a father to him. So that could be understood as arguments in favor of reading the cardinal number one in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 theologically, namely as a grammatical masculine referring to the father. Now Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7 compares the way that God disciplines his sons by saying, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? I think that's interesting. The way that God disciplines his children is described with the analogy of a father disciplining his son. So the sons are compared to children and God is compared to the father. So it's interesting that the author seems to use an analogy that presupposes that God is the Father alone. Now, throughout the book of Hebrews, God is described as the creator of all things. And all things would naturally include Jesus. So it's understandable that all creation could be said in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 as stemming from him. For example, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says that God has made the world. In Hebrews 2.10, the passage in the immediate context of our passive study, it says that all things were made through God and for God. And in chapter 3 and verse 4, it says that the builder of all things is God. So God is unquestionably the undisputed creator according to to the book of Hebrews. So it's very likely that the argument could be made in Hebrews 2.11 that 
Jesus, the one who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all come from one person, namely the Father. That would be in line with the theology of the book of Hebrews. So what are the benefits of this particular way of reading? What are the benefits of this argument? Well, it would mean that God is the creator of Jesus, and of course God is the creator of humanity as a whole. It would indicate that Jesus has a beginning because Jesus was created. It would also indicate that God is Jesus' creator, meaning that, that God is the God of Jesus. Now, it doesn't exactly say when Jesus was created, but the Son of God is clearly not co-eternal with the Father if he is created by the Father. It would also be read as a pretty clear Unitarian statement because it defines the Creator as one single person. Only one person is the Creator. Not three persons, not two persons, but one single person. Now, it's also possible, I'm just throwing this out there as a possibility, even though I don't think it's very likely, it's also possible that the masculine number one could refer to a person namely Adam, since humanity would descend from Adam, and of course Jesus would descend from Adam. So that's a possibility, but I think it's very, very unlikely because Adam is never mentioned, alluded to, nor discussed anywhere in the book of Hebrews. So while it's a possibility, I think it's very unlikely, but I wanted to throw it out there just for the sake of consideration. Let's move to our third and final point, which is interpreting the number one as a grammatical neuter. This is the second interpretive option. It's not interpreting the number one as referring to one person, but as to one thing. In this reading, which we're going to call the anthropological interpretation from the Greek noun anthropos, which means humanity, Hebrews chapter two and verse 11 would say, for both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's humanity, are all from one humanity, all from one thing, all from one stock, all from one human race. For which reason, he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, the context that would suggest this interpretation would be the verses that follow Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. Specifically, verse 14, which says that, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. So the passage actually indicates that Jesus partook of the same humanity, flesh and blood, as everybody else, as the children. And if you go a little bit further in verse 17, it says that he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things. So there is a strong argument, and I can't deny this, there is a strong argument that indicates that Jesus has the same humanity as every other human being. Jesus is not human in a different sense. He is human in the very same sense as you and me. So what are the arguments in favor of interpreting the cardinal number one in Hebrews 2.11 as a grammatical neuter? referring to one thing, namely the human race. Well, 
the citations from the Old Testament seem to focus on the shared humanity of Jesus as the believers, namely the brethren. So remember Psalm 22 as Jesus speaking about his brethren, namely his brothers. And in Isaiah chapter 8, Jesus has family members that God gave to him. So these citations indicate that there is this shared humanity, there is this shared bond between Jesus and his human brothers and sisters. And of course, the very next verse, after the citations, says that they shared flesh and blood. And Jesus has this very same flesh and blood that humanity possesses. So that, of course, is in chapter 2 and verse 14. Now, what are the benefits of this argument, this particular interpretation, which we're calling the anthropological interpretation? Well, one benefit is that Jesus would be just as human as everybody else. This humanity of Jesus would not be some sort of pseudo-humanity that Jesus took upon himself if he came from a supposed literal pre-existence. It would not be some sort of impersonal human nature in the Trinitarian sense of the doctrine of the two natures of Christ, the post-biblical doctrine of the two natures of Christ, I should add. It would indicate that Jesus is a member of the human race just like you and me. He is just as much of a man as David, as Peter, as Paul, as Barnabas. He is a fleshly human being in the fullest sense of the word, without any qualification. We all, Jesus included, would have derived from a common humanity on this particular reading of Hebrews 2.11. Now, I should make one point absolutely clear before we move any further into this episode. It should be stated that two things can be true at the same time. What I mean is that it can be true that God is the Father of both Jesus and humanity, and so Jesus and humanity would all be sons of the Father, in a sense. And it can also be true that Jesus is a human being like everyone else. These truths can both be true at the same time. And I think that the New Testament teaches both of these truths emphatically. But the question, which is a separate question, is to which of these two truths does Hebrews 2.11 refer with its use of the cardinal number one? In Hebrews 2.11, only one of these truths can be stated. The cardinal number one can only be masculine, referring to the Father, or it could be neuter, referring to a shared humanity. But, Choosing one interpretation does not mean that the other truth is untrue. And it's important to keep these things in mind. By picking one interpretation, it doesn't mean that you're saying that the other interpretation isn't a true truth. It just means that Hebrews 2.11 is only arguing one particular point. It's not negating the other point. Now, for what it's worth, I actually think this is a 
pretty difficult decision to make. I actually think that both arguments have very compelling cases. Both arguments make use of the context. The previous context, prior to the citation, involves the argument of God being the creator of all things, and the context following the citation, immediately following, involves Jesus and his shared humanity. So both of them make use of the context. Both arguments refer to actual truths that are taught in Hebrews chapter 2. But as of today, at the time that I'm recording this, I slightly favor the argument that sees the cardinal number one as a grammatical masculine, indicating that Jesus and his human brothers all originate from a shared creator, namely the person of God the Father. But I would say that I'm not going to dismiss anybody who finds that the shared humanity interpretation is actually more compelling. I can understand that. I used to take that particular position. But today, I'm probably 55% on the grammatical masculine side and 45% on the grammatical neuter side. And I could be wrong. And that's okay. So in conclusion, we have observed that there is an ambiguous reference in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 regarding the cardinal number 1, which grammatically could be either masculine or neuter. Most English readers are completely unaware of this grammatical ambiguity and the two interpretive options that are at stake. One interpretive option is to understand the cardinal number theologically, that is, as a masculine number referring to the Father as the sole creator. This would indicate that Jesus and his human brothers were created by God the Father alone. The other interpretive option is to see the cardinal number one anthropologically, that is, as a neuter number referring to a shared humanity from which Jesus and his brethren derive. If this is what the author of Hebrews intended, then it would indicate that Jesus is a genuine member of the human race, just like you and me. And lastly, it should be noted that while both of these truths are indeed taught in Scripture, only one of them can be stated with the cardinal number one in Hebrews 2.11. The number one cannot be both masculine and neuter. However, seeing Jesus as being created by the Father alone and portraying Jesus as a genuine human being are essentially the tenets of the biblical Unitarian position, which is why, however you decide to interpret Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, biblical Unitarians should make use of this text far more frequently than the amount of times that we already are using it. It is a much more powerful passage than we have given it credit in the past. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Please join us next week as we continue looking through Hebrews chapter 2 in order to better understand the importance of Jesus being this genuine human being and the ways in which the author of Hebrews is going to stress this shared humanity that Jesus has with everyone else. 
please look forward to our next episode. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of our episode that I'm going to participate in an upcoming debate. The date of this debate is Friday, October 22nd. It's going to be streamed live on YouTube at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. The YouTube page is the Gospel Truth YouTube page. And the title of the debate is, Does the Old Testament Teach Unitarianism? I, of course, am going to take the affirmative position because I believe that the Old Testament teaches Unitarianism. So if you'd like to support me in the debate, you can watch it live. And we're going to be talking about the debate and breaking it up into various episodes afterwards. And I will make all of that content available to you if you're not able to listen to it live. But I appreciate you in supporting me in the preparation of this particular debate. Now, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the important truths of God's oneness and the humanity of Jesus. If you'd like to offer a donation, you may check out this episode's link for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks, please take care.